Welcome to Immigration Uncovered, the DACAWISE video podcast where we dive deep into the dynamic world of immigration law, shedding light on the latest developments, cutting-edge practice management strategies, and the transformative impact of legal technology, empowering immigration practitioners with insights and exploring the intricate intersection of law and society. Today, our special guest is attorney Ruby Powers. She is a well-known immigration attorney located in Houston, Texas. Ruby is the founder and owner of Powers Law Group. She's also an adjunct professor at the South Texas College of Law. She also is an attorney at The Alliance and a founder of Power Strategy Group, a law practice management company. Ruby, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, James. It's an honor to be here. Well, Ruby, you're really a dynamo and you're a well-known practitioner whose immigration law knowledge and also your level of activity in the field is very respected. Um, let's just start off by, you know, getting a synopsis of your journey. Um, what inspired you to become an immigration attorney? And, you know, how has your journey evolved over the 14 years or so that you've been in this field? Yeah, thank you. Um, my mom was born to American missionaries in Mexico. And so growing up, she thought she was Mexican and renounced her U.S. citizenship for almost all of my life, uh, created a very interesting um, just culture and living in Mexico and Missouri and with different sets of grandparents at different times. I later was able to go to Israel with one grandma and then I was exchange student to Belgium. So all of that international experience, I think a lot of immigration attorneys have some type of a story where they're either a, a child of an immigrant, an immigrant themselves married to an immigrant, or had extensive travel abroad or expat experience. Um, so, you know, I think that's what also bond, bonds us all and having a commonality. That all brought to the table that eventually when I met my husband at, in, at the University of Texas, he wanted to stay in the U.S. And I I wanted to be like Secretary of State or, uh, you know, go abroad a lot. But, you know, what I realized is I can still be abroad in a way and interact with of different cultures and understanding of countries while in the comfort of the United States. <laughs> and that wasn't really what I intended because I have lived in lots of countries. But um, that was a way that I could help those who needed a voice, help those navigate the process, just like my family, not just my mom, but I have a lot of other relatives that are from other countries as well. So I'd say a, a personal background because of my, my mother and then the continued living abroad, experiences abroad, and just being so intrigued. And that cultural understanding, the languages, um, just constantly intrigued. I'm, it just, it's never boring, right? You're always learning about some culture or country or part of the world. And I just, I just love that. I second that, you know, Ruby, I, I do think that's a common thread with a lot of us is that we went to law school, but we really want to have, you know, an international environment. Uh, we just enjoy operating in that milieu. So I'm, I'm right there with you. On that point, that's very similar. And you are one uh, one of around 180 or so attorneys who are board certified in immigration and nationality law in Texas. So could you um, share for anyone who doesn't know the significance of that certification and how does that offer you an edge in your practice? Yeah. So I don't know how many states in the country have a certificate board certification for immigration. I think it's California, Texas, North Carolina, and maybe some others. But um, the way it works in Texas, because they have lots of different areas that you can get board certified, you have to practice at least five years in that space, like majority of that practice area. 
And then you have to submit an application asking for your peers to okay you to sit for the test. And that application also shows that you have significant experience in like, let's just break it down to like removal, family, and employment. And then if you're accepted, <laughs> then you get to go take a six-hour test of multiple choice and essay. And so I, I took the test the earliest I could after five years out of graduation. And what I loved about it, even though I don't love tests necessarily, is that it was actually what I really love doing, <laughs> you know, as opposed to when you take the bar, there's nothing on immigration on the bar. <laughs> And and so you had to pass, study all this other stuff, um, which you might not use that much in your daily practice. So the board certification made me a better attorney by going through the process because there there's no study guide. There's just a long list of topics. And um, it made me build my network with other people that I could call on as experts. And then, of course, like once you get approved, you also have to, you know, that's a nice badge of honor. You have to pay a little more, I think, in dues. Uh, but it's okay. Uh, but you can you can let people know about that. And then that just um, knows that you've gone through those extra steps um, and you're certified by the state. But you also have to get recertified every five years. And so that keeps you on your toes as well because you have to get approval by like a judge or an officer, TA, somebody, um, a few people to sort of just that you're still in good standing. So, um, I mean, I'm honored to be a part of that, that small group, and I highly suggest anybody who's eligible to that in whatever states that you're practicing in to go through that process. Yeah, I did not know about the requirement to recertify every five years, but it makes a lot of sense. So, Ruby, what's the current composition of your practice like in terms of caseload? Are you, are you pretty much spread out, family-based, employment-based, or, or are you concentrating in, in a few areas? Well, we are full service. So I would say that um, our removal has really grown this last year and a half or so that the courts reopened. I, I feel like it was just a few months ago, but now I guess it's been a couple of years. Um, and just the the need there, we have a, we have a significant amount of affirmative asylum because I I specialize in a lot in asylum early on in my career, and we're we're actually only 15 minutes away from the Houston Asylum Office, which. Uh, helps, you know, which has a jurisdiction of multiple states that go their funnel through there. Um, we also have to do a lot of family. Uh, my first attorney position was doing a lot of I-601 waivers before I-601A was created. And um, so we have a concert processing family, but we also have um, employment investment visas. So we're, I would say um, family removal are bigger ones, but we do have a significant amount of employment and investment visas as well. So we're pretty well-rounded and as well as those other humanitarian like use and, and VAWA. It definitely keeps keeps us all on our toes over here. <laughs> Good to know. And I enjoy hearing from people who have sort of like a full service of practice as well. I mean, some people prefer to get very, you know, specific uh, in terms of, uh, you know, subspecific sort of niche. Other people maintain a full service practice. I mean, I, you know, it just depends on what your objectives are as a business and, you know, what kind of uh, market you're operating in. But Ruby, you're the author of a very important book for immigration practice management. And the title of the book is Build and Manage Your Successful Immigration Law Practice uh, Without Losing Your Mind in parentheses. Uh, it's, a, it, uh, <laughs> it's a nice title. In that book, you emphasize goal setting and having a vision for one's firm. So first of all, how did you, you know, how did you come to write the book and how do these practices, how do these principles 
of goal setting and vision shape your own legal practice? Well, you have to know where you're going and you have to have a roadmap. You know, I, I often say, and maybe people have heard me say this before, you don't just, uh, you don't normally get in a car and just start driving, right? And nowadays, <laughs> which like our children don't like, ever imagine us not having a cell phone to give us the maps or ways, but you put it in your in your GPS and you know how much time it's going to take, where you're going to go, how long, how fast it's gonna, uh, you'll get there, if there's any traffic or something like that. But we rarely just go off and drive off into without a plan, right? And if we do go off without a plan, then it's going to take us a long time to get wherever we want to go. And so if you want to be there, the most direct route you need to with laser focus, you have to have those those important goals and the mission vision are all, all related to that. So let me go back. Let's see. I'm a child of a lot of different entrepreneurs and I was just sort of inquisitive a lot about like how best to do things. And, you know, sometimes my family would show me how not to do things, um, not really like on purpose, but <laughs> what I realized by reading a lot of business books and talking to a lot of other fellow business owners and entrepreneurs is that how important it is to, to the goal setting. I really love this book called um, Success Principles by Jack Canfield, and he's got several chapters about goal setting and, and mission, vision, and all that too in it. So I just felt like that was really important. So I, I know it's like one of the first couple chapters in the book because you really need to know where you want to go before you, you chart out your pathway to getting there. And what I've also seen a lot of times with individuals, especially attorneys, is like, okay, I want to go be a lawyer. Okay, great. So you get into a good college and you go again to a good law school, then you pass the bar and then you get your job. And then maybe you have to go do some other stuff like, I don't know, get married, have kids, buy a house whatever. <laughs> but then after what happens after a while is you get complacent and you uh, just sort of like go on autopilot. And and so why I wanted to bring this up as well is that you have to reevaluate your goals on a regular basis and read out your mission and vision and make sure that you're aligned. Because also everything you do with your firm, like how you treat the your clients when they come in to how they... Um, you know, how you do your marketing are all related to your mission and vision for the practice. I think it's a really important point to emphasize. I mean, I do say, I think we all say people who have been doing sort of the same things, you know, for years and years, the same way and haven't grown beyond a certain sort of routine that, that they're in. Um, and I think part of that is that in a lot of industries, they really are constantly reevaluating what they're doing. You know, you have a process and it is reevaluated regularly to optimize it. So this ethic of optimization, I think it's the word the Japanese call Kaizen, which is continuous improvement. I think that that has, you know, started to come into law. It's in law now, but it hasn't reached everybody. I mean, a lot of people just sort of get into a routine. So I think what you're saying is is very important that you have to constantly be reassessing your business plan and optimizing your processes. Can you tell us about the importance of managerial focus? So striking a balance between managing your firm and also, like we said, keeping up with your legal skills and changes in the law and other professional activities. I mean, you've, as I mentioned, you've got quite a handful here. How do you juggle being an adjunct at South Texas College of Law together with, you know, doing the consulting work that you're doing and also stay on top of all of your cases and run your firm? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> well, I've, I've learned to delegate. That's one of my keys. Uh, so I, 
I really like the book E-Myth Revisited or E-Myth, whatever the series, Michael Gerber. And, you know, he really talks, you know, probably a lot of you have read that book. I mean, read Charles the first one who told me about it many, many years ago. And that we are the technician, the manager, and the entrepreneur when we're running a business. And a lot of us think that, oh, we're a lawyer, we're the, the, the technician, we can, we've got this. And that's when you hang out your, your shingle and you start your practice. But that only gets you so far. If you don't know how to manage and you don't know how to delegate and follow up and keep that going, you're never going to, to be able to grow. And I find that a lot of people say they don't want to grow. That's fine. But I want it to be because they don't want to. It's not because they don't know how to. Because sometimes I think they, they say that as an excuse, but they really just don't know how to. And a lot of it has to do with, with delegation and management. When you do, do a deep dive into that, you have to analyze many of us, are none of us are taught how to delegate yeah. um, and, and manage. And we learn a lot from trial and error, good bosses, bad bosses, and supervisors, as, as well as role models. And you can go to courses as much as you want to, but it's still the day-to-day is, is where you have to put it into practice. So over time, I've had my ups and downs. I mean, my firm is 14 years old this week. And so I've had my share of mistakes. But being able to analyze myself and to know what holds me back from delegating more, you know, is there a fear of failure? Is there a fear of control or something? And a lot of people have that when I talk to them through my consulting and courses. So being able to assess what is the best use of my time and delegating to competent and capable people that you communicate with on a regular basis, that's how I do it. <laughs> um, and, and the thing is, it's not like a set it and forget it. You have to constantly be doing it. And like right before this podcast, I was talking to my senior associate and we're, we're considering a little bit of a change in our, our flow because we've gotten to a size that our previous way of structure is just not really going to handle our, our, our potential future growth. And, you know, so that's that, but that being not just setting and forgetting it is like so critical because that's more of abdication. And I'm guilty of that a lot. Um, But you have to go back and reevaluate and keep tabs on things and, and having really experienced people you can trust. So your management experience is that you mentioned you were a child of entrepreneurs. Um, what did you also study? Did you take some business courses as you were going through school, or did you take management courses later? How did you acquire the the know how and the and the wherewithal? I think that because I was a leader in high school and college, and I also had to manage. Um, I worked at the Princeton Review, one of my first jobs out of college. I had to manage the contract and part time, full time teachers, and so I sort of had this unprecedented experience of, of getting to manage people at such a young age. And so between all the different leadership roles in high school and college and law school, I also started a organization law school and then that, that Prince Review management job. I mean, it wasn't really a lot from watching my parents. Um, this is my dad's position company, but I think it was a lot of that practical experience and then asking, reading, talking. And in reality, I didn't even have, I only had two attorney jobs before I started my law firm. So I've, I've been my own boss for 14 years, which also makes me have to ask, like, I, I've, I've absorbed a lot of information because I'm like, Hey, what are they doing over there? And what are they doing over there? You know? And like, let's take those good. Pr- so I also, I was a business minor and I actually did the business 
uh, I was at business school at UT uh, under Austin. And I was a minor. And then I also did the Goldman Sachs 10,000 business program in 2015. And I just read a lot and talk to a lot of people and try to absorb as much as I can. Yeah. I mean, you've got to get it from somewhere, right? Either on the job or from courses. Um, so can you elaborate on the best practices you recommend when you're doing hiring and firing of employees and, con uh, and contractors in the context of an immigration law firm? What's your, what's your hiring process? Well, I think it's good to have a lot of this written down because when you are really short staffed, excuse the farm reference, but it's like you got, you're like a chicken with your head cut off. You're running around and you're freaked out. And so I think it's best. That's why I put in my book about how it's important to have your job description, your questions, your posts, your your procedure written out so that you don't let fear take in, uh, take a hold of the process and you, um, do, you're diligently following. I also, if someone were to, to leave, um, I evaluate, do we need to replace that person, you know, one person for another, or could we shift duties around um, or, you know, delegate, automate, things like that. So don't just automatically think if one person leaves, we have to replace them one person for a person. Things with technology and automation are, have been changing a lot. The other thing is that they say that, you know, hire slow and fire fast. I think with the, the labor shortage, it's been a little harder to, to trust that. But the fire fast is definitely still true. But you have to document things where all of us listening and talking about this are in different states. We have different employment laws. But in Texas, where I've been running the law firm for the, all that time, you know, it's an at-will state. But you owe it to the employee and staff to, to be fair and consistent and document your processes. So if it's two strikes, you're out, then be consistent. And, and you will have to defend that with the Texas Workforce Commission or wherever you're located. So, and whatever the rules are at that time. So just knowing your rules, having the resources, having things written out. But then I think the hiring part is so critical. I've talked with consultants about hiring and they say that if an unskilled hire process is like 50-50 chance of getting the right person, people will tell you what they want to hear, you want to hear. And if you don't know the cues of like checking references, asking behavioral questions, uh, noticing the so small little subtle things about are they on time, do they have a typo on their resume, things like that, then then you and if you just gloss over that or you don't know the significance of those things or if somebody you delegate too much to someone who doesn't know what they're doing in the hiring, then who you accept into the in the fold of your team can be very dangerous if they're the wrong fit if you don't get them out quickly. So. I think that I spent probably the first five to six years really learning a lot of this the hard way and then have gotten a lot better <laughs> since then. Is your staff mostly or all full-time? Do you have part-time people and do you use outsourced contractors? I think we have about 26-ish people in some capacity. Of that, we have about 14 to 15 full-time people. And of those, we have about seven full-time full virtual staff. So the people that are not 100% virtual, we have on a hybrid schedule. So um, we have a, a nice little house office that we moved to a year ago, and we can only have about 10 people in the office at one time. So it, it sort of makes for a good way to, to create a hybrid schedule. That's sort of how we work. 
And are you one office in Houston or do you have multiple locations? We're creating a satellite in Woodlands, which is not very far from Houston, but there's a lot of immigrant growth over there. And the other thing is also with my virtual assistants, I, I have them with Staffy. And so we've been for about a year and a half or so, and we've had a, had a lot of success and in, in consistency there. So, um, but yeah, just, you know, it's sort of funny because like you think that having multiple offices would be good. But sometimes you could just have like an address for the presence, but then having an address is not the same thing as having like staff and a, pres a real presence there. But like if you can run all your operations for a federal practice through one office and all the people working wherever they're working, I don't know. It's It sort of makes you wonder why you need to have multiple offices. But even though I know it's still good to have that presence there. And how much of your, I mean, in terms of client meetings, are the bulk of your meetings still in person? Do you do a lot of virtual meetings? A lot of virtual. We stopped the in-persons for, I think, almost a whole year during the pandemic. And then in my experience, I find that the in-person consults are mostly for either the, the traumatized asylum seeker, humanitarian or low-tech clients, usually there might be a, a language barrier too. That's what I've noticed. I know some firms have just said, I'm, I'm virtual all the way. We still let them come in, but they're not a majority of the, the consults. Like, it's sort of like, you know, a few each week. The rest of them are pretty much over phone and Zoom. You know, that's actually something I did back when I ran the law firm from Dubai. I did things over Skype. So I just, that was really normal for me. Like, before, I guess, it became really common for, for most firms. Yeah. Let's talk about your technology stack. How did you go about determining which technology you were going to use in the office and what does your current you know, sort of technology stack look like? So back when I started the firm in November 2009, the internet was pretty strong, but it's gotten better. And there weren't, let's see, I pretty much used Dropbox and Skype and you know, like Serenade and some other stuff like that. And for the most part, I didn't change it that much because it was like, if it's not broke, you know, why fix it? But I also don't think like technology was like changing as fast necessarily for many years, even though it seems weird to say that. But as much as it's changing right now, you know, like it's so it's so insane. But when I built it, I built it for it to be very like a remote practice. And so I wasn't wanting to have to have clients come in and I didn't really have a lot of staff coming into the office. As I progressed, I have this story about why I went to ABA Tech Show in 2019 and I looked around and I I like, wait, I need to throw everything out and do everything all again, but it was too much of a shock to the system. So for the most part, I'm using a lot of, um, I'm transitioning, but you know, I have Lawmatics for a CRM. We use the G Suite for chat and email calendaring. We, we really like that more than Outlook. That works for us. And then we're actually um, transitioning to another case management software this next week or two with Filevine actually. And we still have Dropbox, but we're going to be able to get rid of Dropbox, Adobe, and um, some other some other tools. We do a lot of e-signatures. You know, we've done that about five or six years or so. That really was a big game changer. And, you know, just the more that you can do everything in one one space and that whatever space you're in connects to other programs that you like and use. I think that's really where you've got to go. And I know, you know, Docketwise has that a lot as well. So that's that's really good. Um, you know, having the management, the forms and CRM aspects in in one. 
And I think that's where, I think what the other thing about tech stacks, because I actually just spoke about the tech summit, the Ayla tech summit a couple weeks ago and showed my tech stack. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, you have to reevaluate your audit your tech on a regular basis. I think you could have said maybe once a year back in the day, but I think now you should say almost every quarter at a minimum because there's a lot of overlap between the different um, programs you're paying for. And just like, I'm probably not the only one during the pandemic when we went remote, I, I looked at all my tech stack at that time and I realized I had a lot of redundancies. And that's really what a lot of the programs too are adding more features. And so then they're just sort of like, well, I don't need 10 ways to text my clients. I don't even pay for 10 ways to text my clients. I just need one. And, you know, just as like an example. And I think where we're spending more money now is on software than we were on maybe space, office space and maybe even sometimes labor's costs are reduced. But that's why we need to be really smart about integration and reducing redundancy and evaluating on a regular basis, especially as you grow your team and all the different licenses you have. I mean, there's these. There are, you know, a couple of these overarching themes that are really driving you know, the, the whole, you know, legal tech space. The integrations is one. Uh, having as many, having things be as seamless as possible from intake through production, and that's all the products are trying to, you know, maximize the, the ability with which they can integrate with others. The AI revolution being another major driver. Have you investigated uh, some of the newer AI products and have you started implementing any AI technology in your firm? Yeah, that's that's why we're going over to Filevine is their their AI reading and, and creation of documents and motions and uh, letters. And just, I have been looking at that really closely. I've also seen demos of, um, and I was on a panel with co-founder Nadine Navarro of, of Draftly AI, and um, that seems promising, lots of cool things there. And also with Jen or Visa AI with um, Greg Siskin, and he's got a lot of cool stuff going on there too that's going to be coming out soon. But yeah, I mean, going, attending ABA Tech Show very regularly, talking to the vendors, being in this law practice management space, helping organize and speak at the Tech Summit for AILA just a couple of weeks ago and stayed in touch with what's going on out there and then have done a few speeches on AI in general to, to attorneys and business owners. And yeah, I mean, honestly, I really believe, and I don't know if people want to hear this, like if you're not spending a lot of time evaluating your tech and integrating AI now, like if you're in your last third of your career, maybe that's okay. You just sort of do that. But if you're in your first and your your second third of your career, you better be paying attention to this and don't put your head in the sand and you don't you don't just ignore it. Because I, I look at that innovators curve and I I think, you know, you want to be in that that top those those first two groups, like, you know, either the innovators or the early adopters. And you don't want to be behind this revolution. This is a big one. And that's also what I've been teaching my law students who are um about to go off and be lawyers at a really scary and exciting time in a way it's like you can there's there's a lot of opportunity for innovation yeah i mean it's kind of cliche but it's it's true that technology kind of takes these quantum leaps where you know there's sort of a huge development that revolutionizes things and then there's all these further iterations and modifications and uh you know sort of uh enhancements of that of that uh innovation so, I mean, we're getting, you know, we're we're at the quantum leap with the AI and then we're going to see how it just filters into everything and becomes just more and more sort of, uh, you know, adopted and ramified into all sort of fields. 
um, Ruby, about about power strategy groups. So you're trying to take your insights and assist other uh, attorneys uh, in optimizing their management. Tell us how you work within Power Strategy Group. What services do you provide and how, does, how is it done? Well, I started this in December 2020 because I just felt like that yearning to want to talk with other business owners and help support them and compare notes because we were going through such you know, scary times and uncertain times with the pandemic. And having written um, my first book with with Ayla in 2019, I had a lot of material that I had sort of put in one place. So we're sort of uh, reevaluating at this moment, like what our new programs we're going to be coming out with, but I can give a little sneak peek about that. We're going to have a podcast starting in just a couple of weeks, so I'll have to have you on. Um, and we're, um, we're going to be talking with experts in different areas within law practice management. They don't necessarily have to be lawyers. But, um, you know, from exit strategy to tech to hiring and staffing agents, things like that. I'm working on a second book that's going to be targeted to all lawyers about law practice management, taking things I've learned these whole 15 years, but also definitely the last five years since writing the last book and reorganizing that material, but um, updating it as well. So that's going to be coming out in 2024. And courses, consulting, masterminds, and retreats. So um, we've done a little bit of all those things, but in different ways. But we're we've been building up the team with Power Strategy Group, so we've got a lot of exciting things that we're going to be unveiling at towards the end of the year and definitely into 2024. But people can reach me at PowerStrategyGroup.com, and but we do monthly webinars right now on different topics that um, are really relevant to small business owners and law and small mid-sized law uh, law firm owners. And so, just creating that community as well. We have a Facebook group, Power Up Your Practice. It's sort of like a resource center with lots of different services and availability for for those who just want to improve. And you know, I think that whole. It can be lonely at the top or running a business, you know, just want to sort of take that away from the demystifying how to run a practice and know that there's a lot of people doing the exact same thing and not to, and for us to get out of that silo and to, and to find, to seek help. Absolutely. Uh, it's, I'm really interested to, to see how it evolves and I would love to, you know, be your guest on one of your episodes. Um, but Ruby, you, uh, I mean, managing, let's talk about financial controls within the, the law firm and managing a budget and budgeting your finances is absolutely critical. So can you share some of your insights on budgeting for law firms and avoiding the pitfalls of doing something like, you know, bank balance accounting? So first of all, I find that a lot of lawyers that finances and, and money is sort of like their weakest area. So one thing I would suggest is figure out what's your weakest area and really beef up that area with courses, mentors, or maybe fractional CFO or somebody you can trust. When we were building out our systems, you know, I didn't have a lot of formal training in that space. And so the way I was building things, like it was just the best I could do at the time. Later on, we hired experts and and we were, what, what I'm getting at is the data is so important and trusting that data is so important and having the the right tools to know that that information is correct and so if you sort of had some like excel sheet and sort of like a duct tape i use that expression a lot of a lot of different systems but it's not being able to give you reports on a regular basis then you're going to get into trouble later on when you want to be when you're when you're preparing for growth because you want to be able to have accurate reports 
So we've moved over to QuickBooks Online for financial reporting. That allows us to be able to do everything remotely. So we have a CPA that supports us with some bookkeeping and organization and also for for taxes as well. I've had hired fractional CFOs in the past to help support us and give us guidance. But you have to have the right people touching the money, working on the money, the right trained individuals, the right systems. Um, I've sort of done things wrong at at different points, but now we're in a good place. (laughs) And so now that we're in a good place, you know, just watching your numbers on a regular basis, knowing trends, knowing when your peak time is, knowing what keeping your uh, fixed costs, you know, low, evaluating your budget on a regular basis as to, you know, do you really need this many users for this account or do you need this other software or could it be encapsulated in this other software so you have to you can't ignore this because money is like the lifeline of of the business so i review the the like the pnl weekly and i'm watching you know what how we're doing i look to see i've you know having done this so many years i know when we're generally busy things got a little funky during the pandemic and some of the things that happened afterwards but for the most part, I know like right now we need to like little squirrels collect our little acorns so we can get through to the holiday season until till January. And usually it was tax return season that people would come out with a vengeance. But that sort of hasn't been as strong with, with the tax code change or something like that. So but the people do come out and hire for the things that don't have a deadline. But the things that have a deadline, like annoyed, a denial, our fee, getting put in removal proceedings deportation proceedings or I mean you're detained that's like the acyclical stuff that that keeps you going so you have to be able to know how to market for that as well but yeah no I've learned a lot the hard way and I think the Goldman Sachs program really helped as well and that's why I like to add a lot of these different things in my my courses and programs. Everyone has things that if they they went back, they would have liked to do it in a better way but I'm and I'm and without saying anything embarrassing I mean can you share um, some of your particular challenges or maybe, you know, if you want mistakes from your early days, are there any sort of uh, challenges like that? I probably would have tried harder to get good reviews earlier on. So I'd have or, or a lot more. <laughs> oh, no, that, no, that's I think I, I probably would have put a bigger focus on management and hiring in culture earlier on because I think I lost I wasted a lot of time learning it the hard way um, in terms of building a good team. And because I would get a group and then it would sort of fall apart if I couldn't manage everybody. And I was, I learned, I learned a lot about myself too. And then also I think finance, I think, I think we should all have a better understanding of it in the beginning and like how an ideal law firm should run. A lot of times when you, we get our experience from working somewhere else, but we're not given the insight of the finance because that's usually held guarded really deep close and we're also not given a lot of insight about hiring because if we're not in a leadership role so i think those are two areas that if i could rewind time i probably would have put taken either extra courses or had more consulting you know so i probably wouldn't have wasted as much time at the beginning you know in the beginning learning the hard way but overall i'm pretty glad I did what I did you know keeping it, the practice as paperless as possible has made us very nimble and we've closed I'm proud that we've closed and shredded most of our files and we don't really have any money paper files in our office we don't make files anymore physical files 
So that's something I'm actually really proud of us for. And, um, you know, just keeping everything in a case management software and organized. And, and, and another happy thing I'm glad for is that we've had a regular newsletter every other week in English and Spanish for many years. And that's a nice way to keep our existing and former clients coming back and uh, knowledgeable about what's going on. Good to hear. I mean, it's very important in immigration law to, con to communicate with the clients on an ongoing basis and have a way for you to reach out to them uh, effectively should there be a, a change in law or policy that might affect them. And, and oftentimes uh, the clients enjoy, you know, also hearing about uh, changes in the law because it might be applicable to them or to a family member, to someone that they know. So really glad to hear that your your newsletter is going strong. Ruby, I, I ask, I always ask people who do any of the humanitarian types of cases like asylum or VAWA, all of those, you know, your book, in your book, uh, you mentioned building awareness of compassion fatigue. And for any immigration lawyer who's taking humanitarian cases, I think uh, you have to be careful of burnout uh, in your opinion, how can immigration attorneys foster a compassionate immigration practice while not becoming burned out uh, with clients who, who do have uh, those needs? So I've been doing this a long time because even before I was an attorney, I, all my three years of law, law school, I interned or clerked in at nonprofits or law firms. So I remember the very first internship I had was at Catholic Charities where I got to work with, and they let me talk to clients regularly. <laughs> and, and, and it was humanitarian stuff. And I just remember it being a huge shock. I just was like, this is too much. Like the, the emotional, um, everything I was learning and taking it. And I was like, wait, why do, why do we get some training here about like how to deal with this? Um, so over time, I've definitely gotten better. And in fact, I remember a conversation I had with a mentor friend when a few years ago, and I was talking about how much asylum I was doing. And she's like, Ruby, I do only one asylum consult a week or something like that. Like you are doing way too much. And I was just like, I no, I'm like swimming in this. You know, there were, there was a lot during the, we, our firm helped out a lot on the family separation time in 2018, which is super hard super hard times um on top of the stories you know what our federal government did to the um those families so i think my my tricks and advice are be aware of how you're feeling and know when you're exhibiting signs of burnout um and fatigue and you're you're suffering vicarious ptsd i write about that in my my first book on the self-care chapter and there's a lot of other tricks about, well, I remember Lori Rosenberg told me about like tapping and sort of wiping away sort of the energy sort of to wipe clean. And I, I know some people might not believe in that. And then there's other things that you can do to sort of like walk around it from one consult to the next, like move around and sort of like transition yourself. But I, you could also just make a, take a balance of not go, doing too much of one type of case. But, you know, the other thing, I mean, I don't know if this is too frou-frou for some people, but I'm ex I'm exploring more in Reiki right now because I'm trying to sort of figure out how I can continue to do this on a regular basis, but not internalize the energy of all the, the traumatized clients that I'm working with. You know, some people might think I'm, I just manage a law firm. I actually still 
hardcore practice. <laughs> I was at a, we won a detained asylum case. Uh, I, I went to El Paso twice, New Mexico, and we won that case, um, I think it was like a week ago, actually. And I feel like when I'm working on these cases, I, I get to know their life more than probably anybody else but them. Sometimes I feel like I know more about them than they do sometimes because they forget things when they're on the stand. But just in general, being cognizant of how you're feeling, what's the toll it's having on you and how to take care of yourself. But having a routine of self-care from therapy, talking with friends, what spiritual walking, the self-care has like a lot of different prongs from psychological, spiritual, physical, emotional. And so making sure you're, you're maximizing all of those areas. And one thing I'll say before we finish on that topic, just make sure you're also aware about your staff. Because if you, those staff that help you on, you have like the asylum unit or the removal to unit, and if you're not, or they do a ton of ball or U visa, and you're not helping giving them tips on how to protect themselves, then they're going to get burnt out and you're going to lose really good staff. And, um, and so finding a way to sort of not make them just do that and finding ways to make it less stressful is really important. You know, Ruby, that's so important. And I, I think that, that, that doesn't get said enough. Um, I mean, we, First of all, for attorneys, yes. I mean, let me just comment. Yeah, well, a wellness routine that does incorporate, you know, your psychological, whether it's talking things out, counseling, your physical, you know, you have to take some time for yourself. You mentioned walking or exercise, getting away from it for a while and making sure that you are, you know, taking care of your own self, the spiritual dimension, however that manifests itself in your life. But, you know, making sure, as you said, that your staff is also because they, the, the paralegal staff, the legal assistants, they're not um, going to, you know, necessarily be plugged into all the resources that attorneys could be plugged in for, for you know, wellness. I mean, we have, you know, different resources available to us. They may not be aware of them. And so you have to, you know, don't uh, take your staff and, and make someone do only you know, heavy trauma, you know, you know, VAWA on asylum cases, you're going to get them burned out and the quality of the service will suffer in addition to which your staff is going to suffer. It's so important. Um, so I just wanted to underline that. And that, that is, that is really uh, an important thing. Um, let's talk up about current events because there's so much going on both in Texas where you are and then nationally, as we head into the 2024 election, let's start with Texas. Senate Bill 4, a highly controversial piece of state legislation, passed through the Texas Senate. Tell us what you know about it and why is it significant? It could be a uh, game changer or a very impactful piece of legislation. Let's see, where do we start? You know, I was just living my best life and then looked up and realized we've got some really bad bills going and before I knew it, they were passed uh, this week on Tuesday night. And um, we're anticipating Governor, uh, Governor uh, Greg Abbott to sign any minute now. So there's a three, Senate Bill 3 and 4. And number three is to um, is giving money to help local police and governments to enforce. Basically, the way it works in number four as well is that it will now be a crime instead of just a civil action to enter illegally and local law enforcement, pretty much anybody in that space who suspects has probable cause that somebody entered illegally could then go 
take that person and put them before a state magistrate judge uh, to be evaluated for their alienage. And there's a lot going on here. So the Texas legislature, which is interesting because I actually ran for state rep a handful of years ago, they only meet every other year in the in the odd years. And it's usually from uh, about January to about May. And they have to get the whole state's business done in that amount of time. Now, usually when there's something that doesn't get done, they'll have a special session. But usually it's very laser focused. Well, Governor Abbott has called four special sessions. And this these bills have been talked about in all of the sessions this year. And this last session was brought about, if I if I understand correctly, just very recently after around the election time, just a few weeks ago, like maybe a week or two ago. And they really just sort of ran these bills through, through the process really quickly, using the excuse that these things had already been discussed prior. And it didn't really give a lot of opportunity for opposition and the normal process that could help keep bad bills from going forward. And so what I know is that as soon as it gets signed, which it will get signed in, because this is a this is a pet project of Governor Abbott, is that then it will go into it's supposed to go into law on the ninety first day after the end of the session. So we're in, I my estimate is around maybe March seventh, twenty twenty four. Let me preface everything with saying that as as immigration attorneys and having spoke about this recently at the Mexican consulate, I think our job is to communicate the the facts and try to minimize the, the fear mongering and, you know, the uns- minimize the uncertainty with this all, because we all were attorneys. Most of us were attorneys during the Trump era. And we know that a lot of that misinformation and fear mongering, it gets people to check, watch the news and read the headlines, but it really just causes a lot of, of, of loss and fear and unfortunate events for, for our clientele. And so what do we know? Well, there's going to be a lawsuit as soon as possible, whether it can be enjoined right away or we have to wait until it it goes into effect. Um, But we already know that people are talking about that. The other thing is, is that the inconsistency, this is a deja vu to SB4 of 2017 when I testified against that and decided to run for state rep because because that really just bothered me of how much the state ledge was getting involved in federal immigration matters and making things worse. What we don't know is a lot of things. How are they going to determine probable cause? What does a U.S. citizen look like? What does an illegal entrant look like? And really, why, the way they worded this the way they did is because they're trying to differentiate themselves from the Arizona 201077 that came out in 2010 and went all the way up to the Supreme Court and was struck down in 2012. But what, they, what I think was sort of smart in a way on this as before is that they talk about illegal entry because the problem with Arizona was that the Supreme Court ruled the local police didn't have authority to arrest someone solely based on their immigration status and that resolves on federal government but the way they word this as before is it's going to be about making it a crime to to enter illegally so then they're going to that whole interaction of excuse me did you enter illegally you know like the how how do you find out that conversation you know and it's anywhere in texas we're not just talking at the border and then 
The other thing I, I'm confused about is like the interplay with like expedited removal, which also, you know, and and then I was talking about this in my speeches yesterday. Like this, this contradicts a lot of what the Biden is doing right now, where the prosecutorial discretion, they do not have the bandwidth, nor do they want, they've, they've reevaluated their enforcement priorities and they don't want, we're getting cases dismissed who've been in court for 10 years, 12 years, five years. Because it's not a priority. If they don't have a crime, they don't have a deep prior deportation order or whatever, they're like, let's just dismiss these cases. So what's going to happen? We're going to go round up people that appear to enter illegally. Of course, there's going to be major racial profiling. And then we're going to detain them somewhere. I don't know. Put them before a state magistrate who hasn't been trained about what alienage is. And many people don't carry their documents on a regular basis. People don't have proof of some things. Things are pending. And then a state magistrate could, in fact, quote, quote, deport the individual. And then if there's even more things they find out about the person, it can be escalated to a felony. And but no matter whatever actually comes about this, the damage is going to be there with all the fear. And just we saw in Florida and we've seen in Arizona and a lot during the Trump era where individuals, mixed households, are going to be afraid to go out, drive their kids, go to work, go to the grocery store, do things like that because they're going to be afraid, like, what does this really mean to them? And I was in, the, in a dialogue with other sheriffs and constables and exactly what we were talking about SB4 of 2017 and all the things that, that had that impact because that was a show me your papers bill. Is that there's going to be the inconsistency of, of of training, interpretation, and application, and so you know I'll probably have to just tell my clients, well, you just stay in the little Houston blue bubble here, and you don't go anywhere outside. Um, but you know, that's just ridiculous. No, it's, not, it's not feasible to do that. They may have to for work or, or for family obligations and whatever. They can't just be. I, but I mean, some of this, Ruby, um, is just mind blowing to me. And I really don't see how it can work at a practical level. For one thing, um, if a police officer, I mean, would, in order to stop someone, they would have to have probable cause uh, to stop them. What What is going to be, pro what is going to amount to probable cause that someone entered illegally? I don't, I don't really understand what the how they are going to go about determining that the person entered illegally in my mind that's even more murky than showing papers and trying to assess alienage because it's even less uh documented i mean if you have someone either has proof that they're in, in the u.s legally or not but to tr try to determine that they entered illegally other than that person's own admission how is a police officer, your average police officer, going to even do that? And secondly, I thought that there was something in here. I mean, first of all, if a state magistrate judge is determining that a person is entered illegally and can therefore be removed under order of state law, how does that not short circuit your federal due process when there are specifically enumerated provisions by Congress giving people the right to apply for certain forms of relief uh, from removal. Um, how is that not just being short-circuited wholesale by the mechanism of state law enforcement? And how can that possibly be constitutional? 
if you look at the immigration law as a whole, uh, I mean, would you not argue that there, I mean, it is field preemption by Congress. Um, the fact that we have the entire body of immigration law, how can there be a state law which is short-circuiting and denying people the opportunity to apply for forms of relief that have been duly written into federal law by Congress? How can that possibly exist uh, under our Constitution? I mean, I, I agree. I think this is going to waste a lot of our dear taxpayers' you know, money that we need to be spending on education and Medicaid and Medicare and a whole bunch of other health care and transportation and our grid as opposed to um, paying for lawyers to deal with the constitutionality of an unconstitutional bill. And you're right. I mean, this literally was passed like less than two days ago, and it's going to be signed any day now. And the iterations have changed so much. Um, I just need to sit down and like really hash it out um, of all the different craziness it has in here. But like even in it, it talks about um, like what an affirmative defense to prosecution is, you know, yada, yada, like asylum and uh, legal permanent residency or something. But then it, it says these things are not affirmative defense. And there's just so many people who have like asylum pending and, you know, don't have documentation on them. And I mean, you could, you know, I don't know if people know this, but like Texas is really big. <laughs> if you go from Houston to um, to El Paso, it's um, it's about nine hour drive, I think. And there's a lot of parts. We have a huge border with Mexico. And there's a lot of, you could be going to Big Bend National Park and you might be asked, a fellow immigration attorney told me his, they were in Marfa, which is a cute little town in the middle of nowhere. And they were um, stopped by law enforcement three times for some quote, unquote probable cause. They, they didn't know what it was. And asking about his Hispanic husband's like identity and document. Racial profiling is, is huge. And this is such a, a horrible aspect because, you know, just like, People don't even know they have, you know, they're a citizen. People don't have status on them all the time. And and it's already complicated for immigration attorneys to figure out somebody's situation. And we're going to put that upon local law enforcement. And part of the conversation that we had in that dialogue recently was that they don't have the bandwidth for that. They're going to focus on the real criminals and what they really have to do. They're not going to be trying to be, you know, deputized federal law enforcement agents on top of their normal jobs. It's just ridiculous. I'm just having major deja vu to SB4 2017. Can't believe we have to be here again. Well, Ruby, we're going to have, we're definitely going to have you back once um, the governor signs this law. And we're going to see, you know, uh, no doubt there'll be tons of litigation over it. But as that starts to play out, I'm definitely going to have you back and we can reevaluate and assess, you know, what is actually really happening on the ground with that. Um, and, and what the net net of this, of this bill passing would be. Um, let's try to at least comment on 2024. Trump released his, uh, his campaign released his, uh, immigration plan that they would plan to enact in the new presidential term, 2025. Uh, and, um, do, do you want to comment? I mean, he mentions ideological screening, uh, expansion of the Muslim bans, end of birthright citizenship. It's really, uh, you know, a maximalist uh, approach. Uh, not surprising, right? Um, but you, you have any comment on any of anything you've heard regarding uh, Trump's proposals for his new term? 
I don't know. It's it's hard, right? You don't want to give them any more free airtime than necessary. Uh, I did see Ben Johnson, Ayla's executive director's comment on on Trump's proposals, and it was along the lines just recently about also the House um, trying to impeach uh, Senator Secretary Mayorkas. You know, just I mean, come on, this is just so ridiculous. It's 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 just so I can't I can't imagine. This is so so. Uh, against everything that that us as a nation of immigrants is all about and i feel like we've only gotten a little bit of a sense of resemblance last few years under biden to try to wash away a lot of the the damage that trump did in the immigration space and you know it just it just makes me cringe to even see see this you know because i'm just like really do we have to even think about this is it even a minute possibility that he could you know be in power and you know try most of all that is is legal and constitutional ridiculous but for the most part just what we've already those who practiced under his administration having gone through all the trying to calm our clients through all of the fear and and knowing you know he reduced legal immigration by 50 percent we we didn't have options we were doing the best we could trying to keep families together and people here and he's really hurt our economy by reducing the pipeline of really um, capable, smart immigrants coming in through through student visas and through employment investment options and just scared a lot of people who didn't have due process to apply for asylum. So I just, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I, I'm so done with that. I don't, I don't want to imagine that even could be possible. But I mean, I, I just hope that we can all do our part in making sure that doesn't happen. And then if it, in some weird universe it did we would be um prepared to to litigate right and left like like it had to be done before well no doubt it's going to be a roller coaster of a year 2024 that is for sure um and again we're gonna we'll have you back to further discuss these developments as they shake out but ruby it's been great having you and i've really enjoyed hearing about the book and hearing about all the different uh, you know, ways in which you're enriching uh, the practice of immigration law. Do you have any final comments for our audience before we close today's episode? No, thanks, James. I appreciate it. I mean, I just, I think it's always, as a business owner, it's important to know when to get help um, for a higher help and when to try to do something yourself. But I, I do, um, you know, believe in that the Kaizen mentality of constantly improving. And I think we do that by listening to podcasts, reading articles, taking courses, having consultants and coaches, doing retreats, you know, all of these things. And that's why I really am strongly um, believe in, in what we're doing with Power Strategy Group. And I just want to be a resource for for other law firm owners and business owners. And so I just really appreciate the opportunity to to talk with you. We covered a lot of detail, uh, you know, a lot of different topics in, in depth. And I think that's such a great venue. Um, you provide such a great venue for that conversation. So anybody wants to reach out to me, stay in touch for for anything we talked about um, or question, I definitely want to be a resource for them. Awesome. Great to hear. Ruby, thanks again. And we will talk to you soon.